Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey folks, this is Oliver here. We have a very interesting interview this week with Asaf from Super Pedestrian. Asaf is one of the OGs of the micromobility space. He's been thinking about these problems certainly longer than I have. And he really blew my mind this week talking about the intelligence that's possible to infuse into a vehicle and why that matters. I found it deeply, deeply interesting and I'm sure you will too. But before we jump into that, I wanna thank this week's sponsor, Twilio. Shared micromobility is a deceptively hard business. You keep losing your connections to those vehicles and soon you will not have a business. And that's where Twilio IoT comes in. They provide SIMs and cellular connectivity platform to seamlessly connect your vehicles in over 180 countries. Twilio helps companies like Lime, Skip, Spin, Beam, and others to effectively scale faster and deploy further and optimize their supply chain. Twilio is also the leader for SMS and phone number verification APIs to help reduce fraud and improve user experiences. So, are you an operator looking for the right global cellular connectivity partner to scale with? Check out Twilio. They offer free SIMs and test credit to micromobility podcast listeners for a limited time. Click the link in the podcast description for more. And with that, over to Asaf. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today Asaf. How are you doing today, Asaf? I'm great. Uh, thanks, Oliver, for having me. It's, it's good to see you again. I think I saw you in Berlin last time, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Man, I'm super excited to have you on the show. I, mainly because, I mean, I hadn't quite realized when I when I finally saw the scooter in Berlin, I was like, man, this is like the combination of a long journey because I had seen the stuff that you'd been doing before with the Copenhagen wheel and, and all these sort of things. And for the folks who, who are kind of just joining this and are finally coming around to knowing who Super Pedestrian are, I'm very excited to share the story with you. And I'm, so stuff, I thought maybe what we can do, do you want to just go back to how you started all of this in the beginning, like right back to the MIT Sensible Cities Lab, or even before that, I don't even know. I don't know what you were doing before that. I'm really curious. Happy to. Hopefully, uh, listeners could connect the thread. And maybe not, but uh, I'm happy to share. So I uh, came to MIT in 2001, actually to study physics. Very quickly, I started working with uh, a professor, Hiroshi Ishii, at the Media Lab where we were focusing on tangible user interface. We were asking, how can you build computer interfaces that are, that are physical, right. that don't require you to deal with something abstract like a keyboard? So I did a lot of work on this for, for two, two, three years. And there I met a person uh, named Carlo Ratti, who's now a professor at MIT, and, uh, and together we started a Sensible City Lab that was uh, 2003. And Sensible City Lab really aims at exploring how can you use machine learning, AI, robotics to address fundamental urban problems. We worked with, or we still do, work with cities worldwide. So the larger cities in, in Asia, Europe, US, South America, Africa, so all over the world, funded by industry. And we focus on all the major issues that cities are facing, you know, energy, housing, and primarily transportation. Transportation has been an interesting one for me because I mean, we've been looking at this since 
2005 more or less. And you know, if you, if you try to frame the problem in the big picture, the demand for urban mobility has been rising since the mid 80s. It's not something new. And we haven't had a flat year since 1984. So you look at expectations for demand by the middle of the century, the most modest ones suggest 2.8 times more people. So almost three times more people are going to be moving through urban roads by the middle of the century. And, you know, just try to imagine this. Where do we put these people? Cities are already overbooked today. Every city has traffic at least twice a day. And some cities are, you know, are jammed for most of the day. So where are you going to, you know, how are you going to triple the number of, of people moving through them is a big challenge. And it's not just a challenge for one operator or another or for one city or another. It's a challenge on the global scale. So if you can do something about this, transportation is a major contributor to this. You know, you're touching on the core challenges that the planet is facing as a whole. So it's been a topic that the world's focusing on, both in the academia and now increasingly so in the private sector. And the solutions are not obvious, right? Everybody thinks about congestion as, you know, how can we get rid of traffic and now go to work a lot more quickly? You just build more lanes. <laughs> that's what everybody, you know, isn't exactly. that just the solution? Exactly. <laughs> right? that's, what, that's been debunked a long time ago. But it's, we'll be lucky if we keep today's traffic levels, you know, with three times more people trying to move. So the question is, how can we really accommodate all this new demand, hopefully also improve a little bit travel time? And the solutions are not obvious. If you, if you ask yourself what the key reason is for, for congestion on the street, it's, it's basically, I guess it's a tautology, it's basically how we use the space on the street. How efficient is our use of the space? Right. Right? At the moment, what, what, we have 1.16 people in commute. That's in a five-seater sedan. Per vehicle, you mean? Yeah, per vehicle. Yeah. Uh, so 80% empty in a five-seater sedan, even worse in a larger vehicle. That's not a very good use of space. Now, there's a good reason for why it's like that. And basically, we've built our, the modern city for cars, right? It's the, the land use, where you live, where you work, where you spend your free time. It's all built around the ability to move in these types of vehicles. Now, if, you, if we're trying to make better use of the shared space, it's prime real estate, right? Streets are among the most prized pieces of, of land in a city, and they are what they are. Most cities are already built. You're not going to double the width of every street in every city uh, in the next few decades. Then it doesn't make sense to do that. So how can you use this space more effectively? It's been well, well recognized that multimodality is the key solution, right? So... Historically, what we did for multimodality, and, I, and I, maybe I should explain multimodality, though probably most people know. Most of the audience get multimodality of the folks who would be tuning into this show. Mass transit is still the most effective way we have for moving through cities. But the challenge is that, you know, if you're, in, if you're a city today and you don't have subway, it's very hard to build one. Like, there are very few cities that can afford to actually network themselves completely with subway. It's super expensive. If you want to add a line, right, today, especially in the, in the Western world, it's prohibitively expensive and takes decades, right? Like the New York, right? The second Ave subway, they designed it when back in the, the 60s or something like this, and it took 10 years to build. In the 70s. Yeah. And that's just one example. There is a limited ability to actually add add or, or completely retrofit cities with, with subway. Not only this, existing subways also don't reach all the people they need to reach. Like even if you look at cities that have a good subway system, there's now they've grown so much around them that now they need to support an additional area in the periphery. 
And so we need new ways of mass transit and possibly more agile. So one solution that's been looked at a lot is so is asking, can pool? So yeah. can I share the same car with you and with a few other people? Is it sort of an agile form of public transportation, rapid bus transit, light rail, etc.? So all these are hypothesized. The, if you look at multimodality, the reality is that over the years, we've figured out pretty well how to do bus, how to do light rail, subway. With all the challenges that they have, we know how to, how to make this happen. And walking is walking, right? But anything that's in between, right? The sharing of cars, right? You can see what's happening in ride hailing. And definitely micromobility has not been worked out yet. Right? It's, it's, it's not economically feasible yet. Mm-hmm. Right? So big challenges on the economics, how to build a sustainable business out of this. And the same is true, by the way, for, for ride hailing. It's still not a sustainable business, as everybody knows. Now, as an aside, before we jump into micromobility, you know, a lot of investment over the past decade or decade and a half has gone into autonomous driving. It does not, in and of itself, it does not have a positive impact on congestion. Not necessarily. Yeah, no, no, completely. Well, there was a study that just came out just today that was saying that they wanted to study the effects of what would happen if, if everybody had chauffeurs because they wanted to understand what the impact would be, you know, like effectively if you shift to a driverless car system, right? And they estimated that maybe there'd be a 20 or 30% increase in the amount of vehicle kilometers traveled if you ended up with a chauffeur. Completely wrong. It was 83% yep. on a cost-for-cost basis. So, all of a sudden, you end up with a trivia. You're just like, oh, man, sweet, I'm going to go drive everywhere. And it's anecdotally true. I mean, it's just going to be horrible for congestion. Even the good things, right? You know, people with disabilities, if they can start moving, it's, it's, it's a great thing. But de facto, you're creating new demand. And you can take it to the extreme. If, if, if moving becomes so cheap, I'm going to build my bedroom on wheels and move when I sleep, right? So you're, you're going to create new demand. Horace has floated this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? we, we, we estimate that the, uh, the demand for movable hotel rooms will be very substantial when they do arrive. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's, it's intuitively obvious. And, and so, so autonomy, while great, in and of itself, is not going to address the problem unless we completely rethink the form factor of the vehicle itself. We move things in a vehicle that's closer in size to the things we move, right? You move one person, build a vehicle that's closer in size to one person. You move a package, build something that's closer in size to a package, etc. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is that autonomy is not a solution to that particular problem in and of itself. So going back to the issue of, the, of, of multimodality and form factors, so we figured out the larger scale modes, but the smaller scale ones are not yet feasible. And you might ask yourself, well, why is it so hard to run a shared e-bike, scooter, moped, or whatever micro vehicle service? And the reason is, is very basic. It's if you look at you know, private ownership. In private ownership, you know, let's imagine you own an e-bike and you, you make sure it's, uh, that the, the brakes are working, the tires have air, you take it to service every once in a while, you charge it at night, right? You, you take care of it to a better degree or less, right? but you take care of it. Now, so if you have a thousand vehicles in a city, you have a thousand caretakers for those vehicles. Now, put that in a shared context, right? You're not gonna have a thousand caretakers for a thousand vehicles. It's just unaffordable, mm-hmm. right? Not only this, those vehicles are experiencing a lot greater use and abuse. So you're losing on both ends. You have fewer people taking care of vehicles that are getting much heavier use and abuse. So. In a sense, that, that, that's where the challenge is, that if you keep using the same vehicles from a technological perspective as we use in private ownership, the same paradigm, 
it does not translate into scalable micromobility businesses. They, 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 it's just not sustainable. I agree. I feel like we're scooting very close here to why you guys have done your scooter. But before I want to get there, I want to, I want to ask the questions about the Copenhagen wheel. Maybe you could explain what a Copenhagen wheel is for the folks who aren't familiar with it. Absolutely. So back in the Sensible City Lab, we got into, you know, it wasn't called Micromobility. And I think Micromobility, maybe, maybe, did Horace invent this name? Nah, he, well, he did invent the name, but it wasn't until 2017. Anyway, so back then we, we called we call them personal micro vehicles or, or personal one person vehicle, or sorry, one person vehicles. Doesn't matter. We got into a lightweight electric vehicles for, for single occupancy in 2008. And the question we asked was, how can you make them ubiquitous, both in sharing and in private ownership? And much of the work that, that we've done on sharing is very topical for what's going on with operators today. And I'll get to that in a second. When it comes to private ownership, we were asking ourselves, well, how can we provide, you know, the best e-bike experience possible at the, at the minimal cost? And we said, can we build a premium, a Ferrari drive system uh, that's better than anything out there in the market, but still, you know, completely change the price point in the industry and by rethinking the supply chain of vehicles? So the question there was, if you can build a retrofit that would take advantage of the existing inventory of bikes around the world, now you've removed extra markup from within the supply chain and as a result deliver greater value to the end customer. Just for those who don't know, for reference, when you buy and you know they look at the big market for electric bikes in private ownership in Europe, it's you know it's slightly over four billion dollars a year and you'll easily pay three uh, three and a half thousand euros for an electric bike. The electric drive system on it, by the time it gets to you, the customer is 80, 85% of the price, right? Because, you know, it's being sold to an OEM uh, with markup and then the OEM marks it up and adds it to a bike and then to a distributor, marks it up and then da, 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 da. by the time it gets to you, you're, mul- you're paying multiples on that drive system. And the bike itself is a fairly cheap thing from a material perspective. So we said, if we can just have one or two layers of markup on the drive system and meet a bike at the customer end, you know, either have the shop build an e-bike with a wheel and a bike or have an OEM do it or have the customer do it, you end up reducing the level of markup, providing more value to the end customer. So we ended up doing this. And and for context as well, so the Copenhagen wheel for those who, I'll put a link to it, but it's effectively, you just, it's just the rear wheel, right? It's the rear wheel. It's fully self-contained. It's got the batteries and the motor and everything inside it. And it's a big, beautiful red thing, by the way. That's the, that's the part I really loved. It's such a stunning piece that's of design. It. Thank you. Look, what we, what we did there was we packed five microprocessors. We built the battery management system, motor controller, communication, decision-making system on the vehicle. Much of what is actually inside our shared vehicle platform is already on the Copenhagen wheel, where the idea was you have a self-contained unit that is a complete powertrain, right, with a battery and a motor, but also it diminishes the the need for tech support by having this sort of self-diagnostics and real-time protection for the vehicle. So if it encounters an issue, the Copenhagen wheel can protect itself from most things that would break other e-bikes in real time. That was very important for us because we need to compete with big tier ones who supply the e-bike world, right? And they and they have a big footprint for tech support, right? That's how they win a lot of business with the bike OEMs. And we said, well, we cannot compete against them on footprint as a startup. Let's automate a lot of the tech support. 
So, and that's been working extremely well. We released the Copenhagen Wheel formally in April 2017, only in the United States. And over there, electrical problems were under 0.01% over annually. It's unheard of, right? right? So we, it was basically, right. you know, for thousands and thousands of vehicles on year one, it was a handful of units that had any electronic failure. It's very, very low, used all across the United States. There were some mechanical issues that were, again, much low, you know, I think it was 0.3% failure rate, which is also an industry's best. But mechanics, I regard as sort of as commodity. It's, you know, vehicle-grade design, automotive-grade design. You, we figured out how to do this in the 70s. But the electronics, how do you make a vehicle that doesn't only give you great power? The Copenhagen wheel learns how you move. It's got, we designed our own torque sensors for this. It can give you power within, I think, 10, 10 milliseconds from the moment you step on the pedal, you get power output. So it's faster than you can even notice. Yeah. So we went, uh, we, we focused on these subtleties for a premium product. So that you feel that it's almost like you're doing all the work or, I don't know, you took drugs. It feels really like you're Superman or Wonder Woman. Well, I was going to ask where the name Super Pedestrian came from. Exactly, exactly. It's exactly that. And, and, and so, so we wanted you to feel like the power comes from you so that you retain full control of the bike, so that the pleasure of cycling is retained. Uh, the electronic braking is very finely tuned. Like you just do a quick twist backward of the pedals and it gives you very... A very sensitive and powerful electronic uh, a regenerative braking and it has many other features but the key thing about it is that it's got in addition this self-protection or uh, an automated system that can detect issues as they arise and protect themselves before they cause damage to the vehicle and in the case that something did happen and an issue persisted that the vehicle could not protect itself from it opens a service ticket which goes directly to our Arabe facility. So we know in advance what's wrong with that vehicle. We stock the inventory. We can repair it very fast and bring it back into the customer's hands. So on the Copenhagen wheel, we already had a lot of these ideas. And by the way... I was going to ask with that. So so you guys went from having... So selling and trying to do retrofits on bikes. And the thing that was surprising to me is because I went and checked it out as I was researching for this episode. And you almost sell these days, like you sell the Copenhagen wheel, but most of the, most of like how it gets served up when you're looking on the website is that it comes with the bike. And that to me was kind of surprising. I'm really curious about how that changed, you know, like where that change happened and what. I think it was a business mistake from our perspective. We built the system as a, so that people could retrofit their own bikes or go to a bike shop, pick their favorite bike and have it become electric. And it gives you a lot more choice. And then you get this Ferrari drive system for much lower cost, right? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, this is seven years later, I, and I, I've learned that you know customers want a solution. You want a complete product. You don't want to think too much. And plus, you don't want to buy a component, a wheel. And consumers don't know that a drive system or the powertrain of, a, of, a, of an electric bike, by the time it gets to their hand, is by far, uh, you know, the majority of what, you know, what they pay for. They don't know it's 80% of the money going to that. So, so you can't charge that. So we had to charge very little, so to speak. It's still $1,700 or more for the wheel, but it leaves zero room for channel. It, it leaves very low margins. It's basically this wheel should cost $4,000. Right in a real world, right? If it were integrated and spread across a bike and sold with a bike, it's something that has a big space in the premium niche, four to five thousand euro bikes in Europe, 
right? But as a component, psychologically, yes, you can't charge four thousand dollars for a yeah, wheel. Interesting. So, so I, I think it's it's just we it came from a good intention, and and it had a lot of solid logic behind it, but actually marketing it, you know, it did well. It still was it still was one of the best selling e bikes in the United States. Uh, and US is a is a small market. Going into Europe with this. We figured that we need to actually work directly with the OEM and make a system that integrates with bikes at the OEM factory. And that's actually the second version of the Copenhagen wheel. We designed it and, and completely engineered it in 2017 uh, with a disc brake. It's super powerful. It's everything that the Copenhagen wheel has, plus a removable battery, all the automated protection, etc., uh, disc brake, multiple gears, etc. It's a it's a very powerful system, but when this opportunity in the shared market finally emerged, we paused on deploying this in Europe and basically went all in with shared platforms. That's the history of the Copenhagen wheel. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Look, that was a this is a great story. I, the Copenhagen wheel is one of those things that like. You know, you can see the, the the essence of something that's just so beautiful and the design was amazing and, you know, commercially it might not have taken off as I wanted it to, but I can see that all that all of those learnings have been applied over to the scooter system. So maybe what we, I'd love to hear, so you guys have got a, a scooter, you've just gone live, you also announced a $20 million raise all in the last like couple of weeks, or well, the scooter might have been a little bit, little bit longer, but yeah, talk me through the logic of you guys uh, of going from where you were with the Copenhagen wheel into wanting to go into scooters and, and, um, and then how you have thought about going into scooters and what the kind of what you're trying to solve for. So, I mean, I'm going to go back to the initial days at MIT and, you know, we started talking about this earlier. So this issue of the switch from private ownership to shared fleets presents sort of a conflict, right? You have a lot fewer caretakers per vehicle and the vehicles receive a lot more use and abuse. And what we hypothesized back then was that unless you create autonomy in the maintenance level, right? Unless these vehicles are smart enough to do things that people who take care of them do, or even more, right? can a vehicle ask if it's safe enough to ride before a, a, you know, a customer gets on? Can a vehicle protect itself from something that's about to break before it actually breaks? Can a vehicle tell you how to fix it once something happened to it? That's the only way to create a sustainable business in sharing. Right, that's a safe enough. Safety is a key thing, right? Unless if you cannot check these vehicles for safety before every ride, or you know at least once a day, but ideally before every ride, you're going to have issues with safety. It's inevitable, right? So unless your vehicles can automate this and have a degree of autonomy in terms of protecting themselves and and, and maintaining themselves, it's it's going to be hard to build sustainable businesses. So we started actually. We hypothesized this back in the day. That's uh, and when I founded the company in, in 2013, much of the focus of our technological development went into this, into creating a platform. So the first four years of the company, we didn't commercialize anything. We built a platform, which is basically the entire suite of electronics within a, a vehicle, and it's battery management, uh, motor control, communication, encryption, and decision making. And the most important thing is we started developing a full-blown operating system for lightweight electric vehicles. The goal of this platform, we call it vehicle intelligence, it's basically it provides you the power, it provides you everything the vehicle needs to do, but also these high-level features of maintenance and support. The reason why we, we decided to develop everything inside the vehicle is not because we want to be cute and we like building custom hardware. It's actually terrible. 
All right, it's 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 a big it's a big it's a big. <laughs> well, under- at least you admit it to yourself. <laughs> oh, it's a big undertaking, right? Everybody wants to do software only, right? I'm leaving aside the the mechanical hardware that that, that I see as commodity. You just got to design it right, but it's it, it's a business investment. All right, it's a risk financially, but it's not it's not an engineering challenge. There we took we undertook this engineering challenge because there's no way you can develop a software embedded software stack and just put it on existing vehicles. It's just the controllers are not designed for this. They're a lot of the times black boxes. Even the manufacturers today, there are 440 OEMs that would make you an electric bike in China, slightly lower numbers for scooters, right? There's plenty of them. But if you go to them, they don't even design their own controllers. They source it from somebody who sometimes sources it from another company and they gobble them together. So we could not find a platform that we could deploy our embedded software onto. And as a result, we had to build it ourselves. But what it gave us is two things. Number one, if you want to have a system that is sophisticated to the degree that it can detect what might break it and protect itself, you need a certain level of sensing, right? That's much greater than what you have on vehicles today. You want to know when temperature on battery cells and they're imbalanced. You want to know electronic component failure. You want to know the consistency of electronic braking and mechanical braking. So there's many things you want to sense. Now, if you go and deploy sensors everywhere to sense that, First of all, you blew your budget. The entire control system of, a, of, of an electric bike or an electric scooter needs to cost under 150 bucks, right? You got this very tight budget. You can't just throw sensors everywhere. Not only this, if you do, let's imagine it was cheap enough, you're overcomplicating the system. It becomes a failure point in and of itself. So what we did is, um, is, is something totally different. We said, can we, by actually commanding every component from firmware, observe how the system behaves and how it changes over time and attribute the changes in the behavior of each component to failures upstream within the vehicle. And that's what we spent the gist of our R&D for the first four years in doing. And it's extremely powerful because once you solve it, it's a big undertaking. It's, it's, it's novel. It's new technology. But once you have it, the bill of material is fairly similar to what's on other vehicles. But now you got all the sophistication for, so, so to speak, free. It's all in software. Yeah. Totally. Oh, that's really smart. I like that. It's very robust. It's very repeatable. And we designed that platform to go into any vehicle under three kilowatt power. So even though we first commercialized the Copenhagen wheel, if you look at our intellectual property portfolio, for example, we have dozens of patents around the world on this, on these topics that I just mentioned. You'll see that our, most of our patents on sharing, on autonomous protection, on vehicle fleet management are from April 2014. Mm-hmm. So... We've been working at this for a while. I actually tried to sell this into the docked uh, bike sharing in 2015 and 16 and into the ride hailing companies in 2016. And, and I got thrown out. They said, oh, we don't want to go electric for the docked bike share or ride hailing. They told me, oh, we want to be asset lean. We don't want to own vehicles. We just want to be a marketplace. Now, we know where this happened, where, where, where it went. I'm actually very happy because... There's these amazing operators. There's over, what, over 200 operators today around the world, right? Five, what, $5 billion in VC money went into the industry so far. Product market fit has been, has been proven beyond, beyond anybody's expectations. And so all of a sudden, we're at this sort of moment in history where multimodal transportation can become a reality, where we can start to really affect urban transportation systems. The missing point, right, is that these... The, the, the vehicle platforms, the technologies being used are nowhere near what needs to be used in order to make these vehicle fleets safe enough and, af- and profitable. 
And that's why we decided to go after this market aggressively. Yeah, this is really interesting. Uh, Horace and I had developed a framework called the Power Intelligence and Network Framework for thinking about micromobility. And so uh, we talked about this very, very early on in the show and, and I still use it as a sort of a framework for thinking about when we're looking at vehicles, you can look at a vehicle by itself, that's kind of interesting, but actually it's as a, you know, on this framework, you think about it as like a three axis graph and you have on one axis, you know, network. So that's how much this is shared, power, which is how much, like how much power there is deployed in the vehicle and then intelligence, which is how much intelligence there is deployed in the vehicle. And so you can have dumb things with lots of power that are shared or not shared. You can have things with lots of intelligence that are got a little bit of power and maybe shared or not shared. But what you're talking about is that, well, how do you actually leverage computation that's coming through as piece evidence of the smartphone wars, all this componentry, you can get the kind of, com you can get those components relatively cheap and then say, we're going to lay a software on and make that so that the vehicle itself is self-diagnosing to solve the OPEX problem. Horace has oftentimes talked about the fact that he kind of, he gets deeply frustrated at the scooter operators because he's like, they spend way too much on OPEX and not enough on CapEx. And then they find over time that they've just burnt all their cash because they've spent it all effectively on on hiring the intelligence to go and do the things that you're talking about, which is effectively vehicle checks and other things. Yeah, you can't you can throw people at this problem. It's not going to work. You can do it while you're blitzscaling, but it won't make a business in the long term. It's good for proving more product market fit, but, you know, uh, you know, spending $5 billion on product market fit is a little bit too much, right? <laughs> <laughs> This is the American way. Not everybody's done that. You know, the Europeans are a little bit more capital efficient in that regard. But I hear you. I do. I, I, I like I love conceptually. I really get it. I think it's a, it's a really important distinction. So talk me through the one thing that I, you know, one thing that I noticed because we got to see this scooter in Berlin is that your scooter is really big. It's a really big and chunky thing. So it's just just a quick point. You talked about self-diagnosis. Self-diagnosis is an important piece, but it's it's a small piece of the puzzle. The, the, the real importance is actually vehicle needs to take action. Diagnosis for the purpose of telemetry is nice, but it's almost too little too late. Okay, this vehicle is broken and here's where it is. You want a vehicle that's able to say, I'm about to break, or temperature is out of balance on, on, on these particular components, or you know my electronic braking is inconsistent and take action to bring it back into a safe and workable condition. Mm -hmm. Right by itself, without human intervention. If you can do that, you're not just diagnosing, you're now preventing the need for, for this vehicle to go offline. Worst case, you know, create some risk in, 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 for, for harm in person to the rider. But most commonly, you know, a vehicle goes down, now you need to pay somebody to go pick it up and bring it to the warehouse. Diagnose it. Diagnosis is something that's very difficult, unless it's mechanical on the outside. My diagnosis is very, very hard for operators today because the vehicles themselves don't know what, what's wrong with themselves. So what are you going to do? You're going to have a low-trained employee, you know, you dig with an oscilloscope. At, at some point, you're just basically deploying a new vehicle, maybe salvage a battery or another component, right? And that's what leads to a lot of the cost problems. So if you can avoid the failure in the first place, so our vehicles can avoid 50% of electronic failures that would happen on other scooters. Just completely avoid them in the first place. They see that something is about to break and they prevent it from escalation. And the other piece of the puzzle is that if something did happen and failure uh, did occur that the vehicle could not protect from, vehicle raises its hands and says, I need a new harness between the motor and the, uh, on the, and the main system controller. Here's where I am. Right. So you can at least do things like 
ordering parts in advance because you're kind of having a bit more of an idea around what's going to be required, et cetera, et cetera. Not just this, you know, as soon as a vehicle comes into your warehouse or even in the field, all you got to do is scan a QR code. Vehicle tells you what you need to do to it. Scan the old part, you know, decommission, scan the new part, commission. It, all the parts are encrypted. And that gives you a great degree of consistency, but also an ability to work with a you know variable level of training on your workforce which we know is a reality in the space, right? You need to hire people who are not engineers. A lot of the times they're, they're, they're either bike technicians or... Oh, totally. And, and that's, yeah, certainly being able to get enough mechanics. That's been a very interesting, from the, like, a, it's a deeply, deeply operational question, right? When you scale to all of a sudden having thousands of scooters, how do you scale up the number of mechanics on effectively a new kind of vehicle? Like there aren't people out there who were e-scooter mechanics even two years ago. Exactly. And, and, and the result of, of what this thing offers if you want to think of it at the high level, you can run now a city with 75% less boots on the ground, right? Number one. Number two is your downtime is slashed, right? If your downtime is what, two weeks to 19 days from a moment the problem is reported by your end customer, right? All of a sudden, the vehicle can detect itself an issue, bring itself out of service by itself. It says, I'm not safe to ride. Please don't ride me now, right? It's it becoming unavailable calls for service, you can bring it back into service within hours or a day. Do you have a, is, is the price point of your scooter public? No, the price point is volume dependent. So, you know, you know, in, in wholesale, it's hard. Say for example, someone's deploying a thousand scooter fleet, ballpark price for the scooter? Let's say that for the battery size, it is, our scooter has almost one kilowatt hour battery. So it's yeah. very, very no, big. So the big battery, yeah. For the size of the battery, it's comparable to what you could buy from the other manufacturers of common scooters in price. For the larger scooter, because the other point as well, right, is that you do, it's a big scooter. So you're talking large, large vehicle. Yeah. So you asked about the scooter. Why is it big? So uh, first of all, it has a big battery. Second of all, we've done a lot of user studies about length of deck, steering angle, uh, rake, all those things that impact the ability of a novice to control a vehicle. And we try to do something that, that most people can feel comfortable on. And third of all, in designing the scooter, we basically, what we did is we took a lot of scooters that are commonly used in the market, we bought them and put sensors on them and saw how they fail. When does the steering column break? You know, what are fractures in the chassis? How, do, how is their suspension performing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we've designed around that. We took a lot of input from operators. We've done a lot of our own studies. We have about 70 different mechanical and electrical and environmental tests in-house. You'll see here, if you come, you'll see uh, many, many different types of dynos and, and abuse devices that get guided our design. And that's what we came up with. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I hear you. And, and I guess the part that I, the reason I was asking about the price is because that decision to go and make a more expensive purchase, quote unquote, in order to be able to get that intelligence, you spend more on the CapEx in order to be able to reduce your OPEX. You can see the changing in the market already in terms of funding. Like operators are, are really shooting for, for unit economics. I think you're right, but I think that decision has already been made on this side of operators. I mean, you look at the scooters that have been used last year, which cost, you know, three to $400. Now a lot of operators use scooters that cost 450 to $650. Our scooters are in that price range. We're not more expensive. So it's not like you need to spend more on CapEx. We, our business in the software as a service model. Okay. Yes. So we charge a software license to access via APIs all the autonomous maintenance features. Basically, the, the pitch is we save you thousands of dollars per scooter per year. You pay us, you know, a hundred some per year. 
right? That's the pitch. Okay. And, you know, with much better safety, with much better ability to control geofencing, which we'll talk about in a bit, because all the maps are stored on board the scooter, right? Because we have a full OS. Now the map's on the scooter. You don't need to ask the cloud for, for instructions. So I, I think you're right about the, the, the paradigm that there needs to be a new balance between CapEx and OpEx. But I think that decision, is that realization has already happened. But you also don't want to overdo spending on CapEx because there is theft. Oh, no, no. This is my whole point. So, so I wanted to get a sense of you can buy the intelligence in theory, you can offset it against your OpEx, but you wouldn't want to spend four times as much for a scooter that could do that if, because you still have all these other risks, which is, yeah, you're going to have people go along and vandalize them and throw them in the river and you can't do anything about that. You know, <laughs> you're going to have a self-diagnosing scooter. I am currently at the bottom of the river. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you look at the total cost of ownership model uh, for operations, you'll see that you know, this might be different for, for some operators, but in the Western economy, you know, you need about 700 rides to break even on a scooter that costs around 600 bucks. By the way, if you look at publicly available data, there's very few, like just look at the Austin data, look at other data, but also if you talk to operators, you'll see that there's there's no scooter platform that hit that. Even 600 is a challenge. The Europeans are talking, you know, T is talking about, they reckon they'll hit two years with their new Okai models. And I, I don't know if, I'm, if I should be if I should be bringing this up with another scooter manufacturer, but that we are certainly making progress, and the Bird Twos are making better progress. Lime has already come out and said it's getting seven and a half months per scooter. So I hear you; like it's it's certainly not what it was in the day, in the early days of being a month. You know, it's it's a lot better today because people are spending more on scooters. But without without speaking about one manufacturer or another, since primarily everybody's using the same stuff. Right, everybody is using the same. All the operators are using the same scooters, more or less, right? And the manufacturers nor the operators have the capacity to engineer the key embedded systems within their scooters. They might be deciding on how it looks, on mechanical aspects, maybe the IoT device, but not designing the core platform. That's that's first of all where most of the cost is, right? That's where eighty percent of your cost is, but also it's what governs the entire vehicle. That's what can give you. Improvement in, in operations, improvement in, in maintenance, improvements in vehicle life, etc. Everybody's using the same stuff, vehicles that don't do that. So there is, uh, you know, you'll be hard pressed to believe that one operator using the same scooter as another operator is going to get much better life out of it, right? Unless they're just throwing more people at the problem. So, you know, time will, you know, let's see in two years how, how you know, what vehicles get in two years. That's fine. But and even if they do, right, let's imagine that there is now a new solution that's primarily mechanical that will get you much better life there's a little yeah well just a far more robust scooter yeah there's a and that that is definitely doable but we're reaching the end the limit of gains you can get from mechanical improvements you can see that from what you know a lot of the scooters today out of the out there on the streets are so much better mechanically than their predecessors but still you know profitability is far away why because the biggest gain is actually not in the mechanical. The biggest gain is happening when you're able to actually replace your boots on the ground with automation on the vehicle. If you're beginning now to operate a city with fewer people, if your vehicles can now live for instead of 700 rides to live 2,500 rides, 2,000 rides. Now, even if you have a mechanical platform that's performing much better and you're happy about it, now all of a sudden you're starting to extract profits. You're dropping much further your cost. So no matter what the solution is that exists today on the market mechanically, 
you know, you're still going to, you know, have the situation where if you apply to this, any kind of technology that can improve your OPEX, right? It can improve your, your, you know, your deployment of people, you know, the amount of money you spend on maintenance, the number of failures of vehicle experiences, safety issues, you're going to be better off. You're going to, you know, start to make money. You're going to be spending a lot less on HR. You're going to find it easier to scale. And it's going to be easier from a compliance perspective also to get licensed. Okay. When you say you've got all the self-diagnosis, cool. Okay. That sounds great. You can reduce your OPEX. But what does that actually mean? Like what is the, what are the numbers around that? Sure. So if you look at the main light items on sort of a P&L of an operator, right? It's vehicle depreciation. This vehicle has been tested for 2,500 rides. You know, there's not a single scooter that hits 600. How do we do it? Avoid failures that, you know, 50% of failures that break other scooters but also mechanically. There's, there's some scooters that, are, that do more than 600, but I'll, get, I'll let you get that point, yeah. Well, there are, but it's singular examples, right, in singular markets. On average, if you try to look at the industry, just look at public data, it's very hard to get that because there's a limit to how much you can do mechanically. Yes, there is. Though the data is also very hard to be able to like unpack because the way that it's that it's structured, oftentimes you can't track the, an entire scooter the whole way through its life cycle, but I hear you on that. Yes. Well, if you replace the entire inside of a scooter, is it the same scooter? No, I'm talking about using the same scooter. Well, this is the whole question. And this is why I'm saying the data is really hard to be able to track, right? So you... Of course. You can... If you throw an army of people and, and replace the components in a scooter every few weeks, uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having a scooter go continuously, maybe replace some plastic parts if people vandalize them and keep going. On the depreciation side of vehicle life, you know, it's, it, it, lives, it lives a lot longer. On the charging, you know, you can charge it every three to seven days. The, and then there's a huge saving in, in maintenance and OPEX because if the vehicle does fail, right, and remember it fails, you know, a lot less because it protects itself. But if it could not protect itself, it opens its own service ticket, goes to an app on your ground crew, right, through an API, and it tells your boots on the ground what needs to be fixed. You scan a QR code. It says replace motor controller, replace this harness, replace that, you know, etc. So it it reduces downtime by a lot. It reduces the number of people you need to have both in the warehouse and on the ground in order to sustain the same number of fleet. So all in, you could be saving 70-75% on your total cost of ownership of a, of a fleet in a year. Right. So 75% down on something, because this is the thing, right? Like I was just ballpark figures. You pay $600 to buy the scooter and then you spend three grand charging and uh, charging and then doing maintenance on it over the over the period of a year. So if you're talking, yeah, it could be quite a substantial thing. That That's if you don't deploy a new scooter. If you deploy multiple new scooters, right? You could, you could also hit $9,000 a year per scooter in total cost of ownership. Yes, yeah. yeah. Again, it all comes down to how long the scooter lasts. Cool. So talk me through, um, have you got any announcements that you can make around operators who, who are going to be adopting super pedestrian scooters at this stage? We'll have two deployments at the beginning of the year. I can't name them. They're under NDA. Okay. And there's, there's a lot of demand for this is just because it addresses the economics issue. Oh, no, completely. I mean, I conceptually get it. I just, yeah, the, the part will be obviously there is a already quite a long and established you know, the Chinese manufacturers have really kind of taken this and locked up, a, you know, a good chunk of the supply chain and uh, with exclusive, you know, a lot of 
supply arrangements with operators around the world. So it's it seems in some ways that you're coming to this late. You do have a very interesting <laughs> late. This is so so relative. It's also as well that you come with a, a very, it's almost like a different value proposition, right? It's a different way of thinking about it from a scooter operator. And so it's just interesting. It'll be interesting to hear how they adapt. Let me, let me even push it further. I mean, look, there's a big tension between buy versus build every time you sell a technology in B2B. Right. So, you know, we've seen companies at the beginning of, of this, let's call it the uh, this sort of new micro mobility wave, starting from China and then here, companies that want to own the full vertical stack and say, you know, I want to design my own vehicles. I want to own ground operations. I want to own customer acquisition. I want to own city relationship. Fine. Great. However, you know, you, ve- you very quickly come to see that actually there's not a single company that has designed its entire vehicle. Not even one, right? Not on the not where the important stuff lies. Not on the not on the side of the electronics. Definitely not adding intelligence, right? So it hasn't happened in the two years that elapsed. Second of all, the economics issues persist. So it, what quickly emerges, and I think there are, we see today also a great understanding on behalf of the sort of more mature operators, is that operations is a world. In as much as Uber doesn't design its own cars, right? The operators in micromobility also are now accepting that there's going to be technology layers on the fleet platform side that are going to enable their services, right? Whether it's better vehicles, or the maintenance software, safety systems, compliance systems, etc. And if you think about it, you know, the time, the R&D invested in this platform is about six years. You're an operator, you need to deploy on a monthly level or on a quarterly level, right, and show revenue growth on these that kind of time frames. There's no synchrony between one time frame and the other, right? You, you know, yeah, completely. Something takes years and the other thing takes takes months. It's a very different type of uh, of undertaking. Yeah, there's a there's a great article, I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, by Michael Nucker and Stephen Lambert, so Stephen's strategy at Skip, and they wrote this article talking about how the supply chains for micromobility and looking at trying to understand, okay, cool, what are the options that are available for operators, right from, you know, go and get off the shelf stuff and the benefits that that brings right through to like building their own custom hardware. And you sit somewhere in the middle of that. We're picks and shovels play, right? And, and, and by the way, our business model is not just selling to operator and SaaS, we also do joint ventures and a whole bunch of other things. You know, we try to try to maximize as much as we can the benefit of the savings we offer. If we offer you thousands of dollars in saving per scooter per year, we want to benefit as much as we can as a business from that saving, right? You know, talking about supply chain for a second, how can we offer a scooter that's got all this fancy intelligence inside that can do all these things that in many ways cars can do at pretty much the same price as the other scooters you'll buy on the market? The way we do this is by by reversing the supply chain. So. We don't go to a contract manufacturer who makes scooters or e-bikes and say, here is our design, please make it for us. We start from the tier two suppliers. We go to the board makers and we say, okay, here are designs for several boards. And by the way, here are the end of line testers that we designed that you need to deploy at the end of your line. Right? And then these each board is tested at the board level and then at the module level, if it's installed in some, you know, in some casing with, uh, with harnesses. Then we take those boards and we provide them to the tier one suppliers, right? So we go to the, we take the battery management system and we go to the battery supplier and we say, hi, uh, battery maker, 
please use this particular lithium chemistry from this particular maker with this BMS. And by the way, here's a tool for the plastic casing. Please sandwich it all up. And here is the tester at the end of the line that will test our technology, our, you know, our, our, the subsystem. And all the data from these tests flows to our servers at Superpedestrian, at HQ in Cambridge, Mass. So we always have monitoring of the quality coming off the line at the sub-supplier level. By the time all the embedded systems make it to final assembly, we already know what passed inspection. Right? You know, once you scan it on the line, in order to install it within the mechanical scooter itself, it's already been tested before, so we know that it, that, that it functions. And at the final assembly, all that the uh, uh, manufacturer has to do is mechanical assembly and the scooter test itself to ask if it's passing the tests on the embedded level. And what it allows us to do is basically two things. Number one, we pay for labor over material because we don't buy any intellectual property, so to speak, with it from anybody. We don't buy batteries. We don't buy, you know, right, with a BMS. We don't buy complete stuff. We don't buy motor controllers, right? We design even the chemistry and the magnets of our motor, we design, right? So, so we just specify and we pay for labor. So the costs for us are lower to begin with, and number two, we don't have a sole source condition. PCBA manufacturing, we can go anywhere we want, right? We own the testers, we own the tools, we, and it allows us to scale also a lot faster because final assembly, right? You can do it at a low cost environment to a much uh, more flexible extent if the operation is not complex on the production line. If you don't have too much automated inline testing, etc. Right, so we do pre-testing before. So that's a bit. We might be going a bit in the weeds, but that's what allows us. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say we should pull up because I'm also where we're running up against time, and I just want to ensure that we can cover off. So you you'll have hopefully something to announce in January regarding the the operators that are going to be deploying your scooters. For folks who want to learn more about it, obviously, it's just head to superpedestrian.com, right? Yeah, yeah. Just on our website or or or, uh, or email us at info at superpedestrian.com. And, you know, headquarters is always open. People come here all the time for demos. Yeah, well, I, I'm keen to at some stage come across and, and have a ride of the scooter. For folks who are just kind of uh, listening in, the, the scooter itself is it's massive. It's a beast. And the, the one question that I did have, it's a sort of final one, is, you know, we're seeing a move very from most operators that I've seen towards swappable batteries. And I'm wondering, do you guys have swappable batteries in your system at the moment? Is that something that you're looking to integrate in the future? So our current scooter on sale right now is not swappable for the batteries. Swappable is coming out in the end of Q1 next year. It's exactly the same scooter, by the way. So this scooter was designed for swappability from the mechanical perspective and the electrical perspective. It's just that we did not build the first batch with swappable just because the demand was higher for non-swappable. Interesting. Okay. Because I would have thought the OPEX is higher if you don't have swappable. So. Well, it's because companies who operate on a juicer model have difficulties with, with swappable batteries. It works when you have you know, your operations on your HR, uh, if, you, if, you, if you own ops, which is increasingly happening in the operator world. So for us, it's a simple switch. It's more about certifying the the extra battery, but mechanically the scooter is exactly the same. The, the chassis is designed to withstand one ton static load vertically without the top part. Oh wow, it might almost hold me, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you might ask yourself why one ton? It's not because there's a person who weighs a ton, but it's because if you're on the heavier side of your target customer and you hit a pothole, there is a moment there where you have 
you know, a, 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 like kind of a spike of a very high load, which you need to be able to withstand. By the way, talking about removables, it makes a lot of sense, right? We, you know, people do it in e-bikes all the time, but the jury is still out on what makes most sense. It all depends on how often you need to rebalance, but also on how many batteries you need per vehicle. Right? If you can bring it down to like 1.2 batteries per vehicle, it begins to make sense. If you're above 1.5 batteries per vehicle, you're spending a lot on capex, so you have to make sure it balances your opex savings. So there's even there, there will be time for the industry to learn how to adopt this technology and make sense of it. But uh, it, it makes it makes total sense. The other thing that I maybe want to mention is that most probably we'll see many other types of micro vehicles, you know, on the streets. And we don't know what people would like. You know, people double-clicked on scooters. People like e-bikes. The Segway wasn't uh, it wasn't a great success, even though it was an incredible engineering achievement. Yeah, absolutely. So there will be a lot of iteration, right, in terms of experimentation on what what, what is the next thing that people would like. How do you? What's a micro cargo vehicle? How do you schlep shopping and or a child, right? Uh, what about a covered vehicle for the elements that's still small and nimble. If you talk about the, the vehicle form factor, we know that we have a lot more needs to address in the marketplace, right? You, people need to take shopping, need to take their kids, there is rain, right? How do we address them? There will need to be additional vehicles, which is why we've designed this platform to be vehicle agnostic. So we can really take it and iterate on vehicles very, very quickly. We've built many types of vehicles here historically. So for prototyping, we take about three months. Then you have to take it into production, which could take you another nine months or a year, depending on the complexity of what you build. But that makes it very agile for us. And we're, we're kind of excited. Now there's a big demand for electric bikes again, for mopeds. Yes. Yeah, with Scoot, the Bird Cruiser and things. Yep. Exactly. And I'm very excited to see what will happen with, with on, the, on the delivery side, like micro cargo vehicles, right? There's, you know, delivery vehicles are, are, are just clogging cities. You've got to get your Amazon order or stuff. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Exactly, we all got addicted to it and now the city has come to a halt and it's becoming an, incre- an increasing issue. Precisely, precisely. Awesome. Well, look, we better wrap this up, but man, this has been such an interesting discussion and I like just affirming you've been around the block for a long time and uh, and it really shows you, you really understand the, the kind of the issues that are at play here and I think what you're doing is really in a, a very intelligent play on that space. So I'm, I'm really excited to see where you guys end up. And at some point, I would love to be able to have a go on uh, both the scooter and also to try out the Copenhagen wheel because it's one of these beautiful piece of design from, uh, it may not have been the commercial success that we all hoped it would be, but it's still a beautiful thing. So, First of all, you can try the Copenhagen wheel all over the country. So there are plenty of stores that, that offer it in the United States. And second of all, uh, scooters, you'll be able to try them on the streets beginning of next year or just come to our HQ or meet us at the micromobility event. I, it's, it's a new type of event I should tell you about. Uh, we're probably going to be there with the scooter. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? <laughs> awesome. Well, actually, we have the dates for our new one, uh, April 22nd and 23rd. It's in the Bay Area again at Richmond. Horace and I will get on and do a proper announcement of that at some point. But yeah. Perfect. Excellent. Well, look, you take care and uh, th- thank you, mate. We'll have you on in the in the future, I hope.